Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a merciful God, uh, that you come to us in our weakness, you come to us in our place of brokenness, and you promise to mend us through the truth of the gospel, the gospel of your love and of your forgiveness. So Lord, as we look at your word today, I ask that you would open our hearts to hear this message, not just with our ears, but with our soul, and that through hearing this message, Lord, that we would come to understand in a deeper and a greater way uh, how majestic and how amazing your love is for us today. So Lord, I pray that this, uh, the love of, of Jesus, the, the love that was demonstrated on the cross would flow into our hearts and then out of our hearts into our hands and feet so that we would touch others uh, with the love with which we've been touched with by you. So Lord, only your Holy Spirit can do this. So we ask for your Holy Spirit to come and to work through the preaching of your word today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, go ahead and be seated. Our sermon series right now is entitled A Messy Church, A Perfect Savior. And we're talking about the church being a messy place because the church is filled with broken people. Broken people like me and broken people like you. And with our brokenness comes uh, a mess. How many of you would say that, that sometimes your, your life is a little bit of a mess? Your family is a little bit of a mess. Your workplace is. Well, the same thing is true within the church, too. Churches are messy places because churches are places for sinners like you and I. And so as we work through 1 Corinthians, we're learning that the Corinthian church uh, was a messy church. They had problems within that church in the ancient Roman city of Corinth. But 1 Corinthians also proclaims a perfect Savior. And I know that you're so grateful to God that he is a perfect Savior. In the midst of our messiness, in the midst of the messiness of, of life, of, of family, of work, of community, and even of church, we serve a perfect Savior who walks with us through the messiness of this broken world. And so we can have great hope and we can have great confidence, not necessarily in ourselves or even in our church, but in the Savior who has promised us his love, his forgiveness, and his grace, and the power of his Holy Spirit at work in our lives and among us as a congregation. And today we're going to be talking about one of the foundational aspects of our faith and of the church. And if we don't get this, then the church really is. It's much messier than, than it, it needs to be if, if we don't get 1 Corinthians 13. So we go today to 1 Corinthians 13. We actually go to chapter 12 beginning with the 31st verse because last week we talked about spiritual gifts. We talked about the importance of, of being active within the ministry of the church through these Holy Spirit empowered, Holy Spirit enabled spiritual gifts which are to be used in serving the body of Christ. And so at the end of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, he says, Now eagerly desire the greater gifts, referring to spiritual gifts. But then he says, the last sentence of chapter 12 is this, And yet I will show you the most excellent way. So St. Paul talked about these gifts. He, he, he laid out the importance of spiritual gifts within the life of the church. The gifts are needed. 
that we have these spirit-empowered and spirit-enabled abilities to build up the body of Christ and to benefit the body of Christ. But he says here at the end of chapter 12 that these gifts are not the most excellent way. So we can have terrific preaching and we can have all of our theological ducks in a row. We can have all of our organizational ducks in a row. We can have an amazing outreach program. We can fill the church full. But if we don't have what 1 Corinthians 13 is talking about, it really means nothing. And so that's why he says, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. Going to 1 Corinthians 13.1, he says, If I speak one of the spiritual gifts in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and that's preaching, proclaiming God's truth, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul writes, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, love never fails. Or it can be translated, love never ends. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away, put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror... Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Here is the reading of God's word. I'm sure many people believe something false about 1 Corinthians 13. And that is is that 1 Corinthians 13 has to do with marriage. And the reason for this is this is probably one of the most popular passages uh, that are read at weddings. Uh, Oftentimes this passage is read at a wedding. So some people may think that this has to do with marital bliss or marital faithfulness. But actually it can be applied to marriage. And it should be applied to marriage. But within the context of 1 Corinthians 13, this has to do with our relationships with one another. It has to do with uh, the messiness of life within the body of Christ, within the church. So 1 Corinthians 13 really is applied to us and how we are called to relate to each other within the church. 
And I heard a preacher say this, and I believe this is true, that love is the rails upon which the church ought to move. I'll say it again. Love is the rails upon which the church ought to move. When a locomotive goes off the rails, what do you have? A train wreck. When a church is not motivated by love, what do you have? A church becomes a train wreck. A church can be organized, a church can be active, a church can even be growing, but in God's eyes, the church is nothing but a train wreck. And that's because we should not look at the church in the same way that the world estimates success. God's estimation of success is not the world's estimation of success. The world might look at a church and say, that is an amazing place. Look at all of the exciting things that are happening. Listen to all of the joyful noise that's coming out of that church. Look at all of the good that they're doing in community. But when God looks at it, because that church doesn't have love, all God sees is a train wreck. And so Maple Park Church, let's, let's not be a train wreck. Love is the rails upon which the church ought to move. Well, some people say, what about theology? What about theology? I would say that theology is the foundation and love is the rails upon which the church ought to move. I would never discredit the importance of biblical theology because without a solid biblical theology, we have no foundation. So we need to know what the Bible teaches. And we need to build the church upon the foundation of God's Word. But many have their theological ducks in a row, but they don't have any love. In 1 Corinthians 8.1, we already looked at this verse several weeks ago, the Apostle Paul says that that knowledge puffs up while love builds up. You can have all of the Bible knowledge in the world, but without love, it benefits nobody. Bible knowledge can actually make a person arrogant. Bible knowledge can cause a person to crush another person rather than to build the person up. Bible knowledge is actually a very powerful thing. If you have a bunch of knowledge about God and of theology and of the scriptures, you stand in a very powerful place because you have the ability to say, well, this is what God says. And you can, you can use that power in a way that damages rather than builds up. So let's attempt to address what love should look like in the church. This is a beautiful passage. You know, this is one of those passages, this is the meat of the scriptures. This is the meat of our theology. And actually when I approach passages like this, it, it causes me to fear and to tremble because I don't feel that I'm worthy enough to try to explain such a lofty subject to you. 
Well, let's try. Love is made evident in the church by patience. By patience. In the uh, Strong's Greek Dictionary, it uh, it defines patience this way, to be patient is bearing the offenses and injuries of others. In other words, when your toes are stepped upon, you have a sense of Christ-like patience towards them. To be mild and slow and avenging, to be long-suffering, slow to anger, slow to punish. So love is made evident in the church by our patience with one another. How many of you struggle with patience? That is a huge, massive struggle in my life. But I want to clarify. To be patient with somebody doesn't mean that we put up with abusive behavior. We do not put up with abusive behavior. Alright, so if you're in an abusive relationship, doesn't mean you have to put up with it. God hates every form of abuse. But there are times when I'm offended or I'm angered by the actions of others. They didn't set out intentionally to abuse me or to offend me or to hurt me. So I need to be understanding, forgiving, patient, come alongside and help rather than to be offended and to grow impatient. So love is made evident in the church by patience. And then Paul says it's also made evident in the church by kindness. And the opposite of kindness is envy. The opposite of kindness is boasting or pride. The opposite of kindness is the person who insists on his own way. If I don't get my way, I'm out of here. When there's no kindness, there's irritability. When there's no kindness, there's resentfulness. Do you know that the disciples got off the rails a number of times? You know, the disciples were ordinary people just like you and I. They struggled with leading and living a a Christ-like, loving life. Disciples got off the rails. In Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45, we read this. And this is showing a lack of kindness. In Mark 10, 35, we read, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, that is to Jesus. They said to to Jesus, Teacher, they said, We want you to do for us whatever we ask. Do for us, Jesus, what we want you to do. Jesus asked, What do you want me to do for you? They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. In other words, give us the two most important seats in your kingdom. When you come to power, when you ascend to the throne in Jerusalem, because they're still thinking in an earthly sense, not a spiritual sense, when you're sitting on the throne in Jerusalem, we want to be in the two most influential positions of power and authority in your coming kingdom. Verse 38, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. And here Jesus is alluding to the fact that his kingdom is a kingdom that is, uh, you have to go through the cross. 
His kingdom isn't a kingdom to direct glory. His kingdom is a kingdom that involves suffering. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said, can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Jesus is referring to the cross. And Jesus' baptism at the cross was a baptism of blood. Verse 39 says, we can, they answered. Jesus said to them, well, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. The apostles did suffer for the sake of the gospel. But Jesus said, but to sit on my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. Then I have this uh, part in the message translation. I'll read it off of here. Verse 41, but when the other ten heard of this conversation, they lost their tempers. They lost their tempers with James and John. Jesus got them together to settle things down. You've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around, he said. And when the people get a little power, how quickly it goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Then Mark 10.35, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus says the way you guys are to operate is nothing like the way the world operates. The world operates in such a way that people don't even care who they step on in order to get into a place of authority, a position of power, or a place of success. But Jesus says you don't lord it over others. That's not the way. But you become a servant, a patient, a kind, a loving servant. That's the way of the church. This is the way we should be functioning here at Maple Park, is seeking ways to come alongside and to serve and to encourage one another. So we should never allow the ways of the world to inform our behavior as Christians. When the ways of this fallen world inform our behavior, we've gone off the rails and the church becomes a train wreck. Two other points. Number three, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Then we're just going to go straight to point four. Point four is love never fails. Or love never ends. Did you know that almost everything that we work for in our lives, and almost everything that we even work for in the church one day will pass away? This church will not last for eternity. Or this building will not last for eternity. The people are the church, and yes, we will last for eternity. But this building will not last for eternity. The programs that we work for and work at, they they won't last for eternity. Our governing documents, articles of incorporation, the bylaws, they won't last for eternity. Our efforts at outreach, they won't last for eternity. Almost everything that we do, it will not last for eternity. This world is passing away. 
Sermons will be forgotten. Songs will go out of fashion. So I ask this question, how often do you worry or stress out about temporary things? How often are you worried and stressed out about things that will not last for eternity? Church, we should be concerned first for those things that are eternal. You see, when I get worked up over temporary concerns of life, it really proves that I haven't grown up yet. It proves that I still need to mature in my life. You see, to live as a grown-up is to have a greater perspective on what really matters in life. To live as an adult means you have a greater perspective on the things that truly are important. Not only today, but for eternity. You see, when I was a child, I was concerned primarily for the things that mattered to me. I didn't have a long-term perspective on life. When I was a kid, I wanted what I wanted when I wanted it. But then as I grew, I began to develop a long-term perspective on life. I learned that, that my choices that my choices impacted my future. So I, I, as I grew up, I, I began to understand that I had to make good choices because the choices that I make today matter in the perspective of my future. And that's a part of growing up, right? We come to understand that our choices have an impact on the future if I made knucklehead choices, it would affect other things down the road. So as I got older, I began to save money, focus on learning, develop work skills, and began investing in good friendships. Those things became a priority. I developed perspective. It's a part of growing up. <coughs> but here's the, here's the problem. Many people have made good life choices. They've saved for the future. They've received an education. They've invested in good relational choices. So they're a success in life, but they failed. They failed to have an eternal perspective. They've made their life something good, but they forgot about eternity. Now, if I had a long rope that stretched, I've given this illustration probably more than one other time here because it's one of my favorite illustrations. If I were to stretch a rope all the way from here down to South America, that would be a long rope, right? If I were to take one inch of that rope, that would represent my life here on earth. Okay, so we need to have an eternal perspective. My life is only one inch on a really, really long rope. So if I lived to be 100 years old, that would be pretty old. 
But my life is only that one inch. So our choices today, in what we do today, in what we invest in today, in what our priorities are today, we must have an eternal perspective in how we live our lives. Because our lives here, the Bible says, are like a, um, a mist or a vapor. It's here one moment and then it's, it's gone. But eternity is forever. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 11 through 13, When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. That is in eternity. There's coming a day when we will see Christ face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain. These three are forever. Faith, hope, and love. And what is the greatest of these? Love. I pray that you don't go off the rails. Pray that you stay on track. Love is the rails upon which we ought to run. Love is the greatest of our eternal gifts. Instead of being impatient and unkind because someone steps on your toes, try patience. Try kind guidance. Instead of demanding that you get what you want when you want it, submit to the needs of others. Instead of focusing on your own benefits, focus on the benefit of others. But why? Why live this way? What's the point? Wouldn't it be much easier if I just focused on myself and made choices in my life that would benefit myself and forget about other people? Why live this way? Why run on the rails of love? The answer is Jesus. That's who Jesus was and that's who Jesus is. And I'd really mess up this sermon if I failed to say this. Jesus is the personification of love. Jesus is love in the flesh. You see, Jesus gives abstract propositions flesh and bone. If I don't understand something about God, I can look to Jesus. And when I hear Jesus speak or when I see Jesus act, that's where I see God speaking, God acting. Jesus is the personification of love. And if Jesus is the personification of love, then the greatest act of love is the cross. Mark 10.45 sums it up for us. For even the Son of Man, that is Jesus, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. The ultimate person is of love is Jesus. 
The ultimate act of love is the cross. And then the ultimate target of his love is you. You got a target on you. And Jesus is pointing his love at you. He loves you. He knows you. He knows your thoughts. He knows your words. He knows your actions. And he says, I love you. He says, I came to this earth to go to the cross just for you. To shed my blood so that you can have the forgiveness of sins and experience my love for eternity. See, I don't know of any other religion in the world in which the religion's version of the creator actually takes on human flesh and suffers death to redeem creation, to redeem his children. Close with this story, there's a little boy. This little boy was always late for dinner. And every time he was late for dinner, his mom was upset with him, gave him a lecture, told him he can't be late for dinner. But sure enough, every night, he was excited. He was out in the neighborhood playing with his friends, and he'd be late for dinner. Every night, late for dinner. One day, his mom decided to teach him a lesson. Mom decided, I'm going to fix him his favorite meal. I'm going to bake him his favorite dessert. And so she did that one night. Made his, her, her, she, she made uh, her son his, his favorite meal and favorite dessert. He comes through the door late again. She knew he was going to be late. And then, you know when you were a kid and you would come into the house after playing and the smell of dinner would just hit you? Like, ah. He knew when he walked through the door. It's my favorite meal. He went to the table and everybody was already sitting around the table. They had their plates full of this delicious food, his favorite dinner. But he looked at his place setting and there was a bowl. And in the bowl was his least favorite meal. It was oatmeal. And uh, he took his seat at, at the table and he looked at the bowl of oatmeal and there weren't even the things in the oatmeal that make oatmeal good like sugar. You know, when I eat oatmeal, I put a lot of sugar. Brown sugar, you know what I'm talking about? I even put butter in it. I hate to admit it, but I put butter in it or cream in it. Then oatmeal's good. Nothing worse than just a plain bowl of oatmeal made with water. Gross. So there he sat. Mom said, you were late again. This is your lesson. So he sits at the table and the boy bows his head down and tears begin to drip from his face. You've all seen it before, the tears just pouring down the cheeks. Dad <coughs> looks at his son and loves his son. Dad wanted to teach him another lesson. Dad took his plate of his son's favorite food, picked it up from his place setting, walked around to where his son was seated and set his plate down in front of his son. And in exchange for that, he took his son's bowl of oatmeal, took the oatmeal back to his seat, and that's what his dad had for dinner while the son enjoyed 
his favorite meal. You know, that's what Jesus did for us. Even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In exchange for our sin, he took our sin, he made it his own upon the cross. And in exchange for our sin upon the cross, he gave us the gift of his righteousness. And because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we have the best. Because he took the worst. And so today you are loved unconditionally. Today you are forgiven of all of your sins. Not because of what you've done. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And today the gift of everlasting life, eternity in heaven. Remember that long rope? One inch represents your life. If you live for 100 years, for eternity you get to be with Jesus. That's what love is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give to you thanks and praise that you loved us so much. Thank you for giving us Jesus, who is the personification, love in the flesh. Thank you for the cross through which we have the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life. Thank you for the resurrection knowing that we too share in your victory over death. So move us, Heavenly Father, to be a loving church. May we move on the rails of love. May we express our love towards others, even today as this service is dismissed. As we go and as we leave this place today, may we offer your love to others. I pray, Heavenly Father, that if that means a phone call that hasn't been made in a long time, or if that means a difficult conversation, whatever it means, Lord, for us to show love, I pray that we would show that love to one another. So in Jesus' name we pray these things, and all of God's children say, Amen.